caught in the web of the fourth world. Entertaining and deft. Today on Dumpster Book Club, we're talking about The Nemesis from Terra by Lee Brackett. And Collision Course by Robert Silverberg. And this book is two books. much to say about the cover the coolest part is that when you flip this book upside down it becomes a different book yeah so this is an ace double which i'm sure everyone has seen one or two in the used bookstores one side's one book one side's the other book and it has that great blue and red spine apparently they're super collectible i mean obviously this one's in terrible condition but My cover is a scene from the story where he's slamming his chained fists and then they kind of just threw some random techno stuff in front of it. So I haven't read this story at all and I have no idea what the cover is trying to show. Is this like an underwater metal man? No, it's just a regular guy. Well, he looks like he's made of chrome and he also looks like he's really rocking out really hard. (laughs) He's flailing his chains around. Doing a cool pose. Uh, yeah, this is the scene in the book where they find the carcass of a sandworm and he punches through it. <laughs> wow. You would not guess that from the cover. I think your cover is pretty cool, actually. Or I, I like the color and design of it. There's not uh, too much going on, but I do like how geometric it is. We've got... Our ship here being pulled in by some kind of tractor beam into a yellow star. I think that's why I'll always read science fiction, because covers with spaceships on them always draw me to them. Just like that tractor beam. (laughs) We've talked about both of these authors on the podcast before, but this time you did a little bit of research on the Ace Double itself. I just wanted to talk about it a little bit. I don't want to do a full history of science fiction. (laughs) In ye olden days, (laughs) science fiction was mostly short stories, and slowly the stories started getting longer, so this was kind of a way to have a way to publish that, where both these stories are kind of novella length, yeah, but you can get like a full novel out of it, whereas before it was all in magazines or short story collections. There weren't really big sci-fi publishers that were just publishing novels like uh, we do today. So this was kind of the compromise they made. So it was super successful, and it was often used to give exposure to new authors or less popular authors. Like pairing up a well-known author with a new one? or Yeah. So some authors that got their start as being the, uh, the one riding the coattails... In one of these are Philip K. Dick, Ursula Le Guin, Samuel Delaney, all favorites of ours. Philip K. Dick got his start paired with Lee Brackett, a much more popular author. (laughs) 
but Ace kind of started falling apart. There was a lot of editing going on without the author's permission in order to get these things short enough <sighs> to fit in these, which is interesting because I'm a fan of Gene Wolfe, and usually the Ace versions are the preferred ones because they have the least editing problems. So it's interesting. Just for their doubles, they did a lot more editing. Than I think or... it was the whole of Ace. started doing a lot of editing that authors are not a fan of. And eventually Ace went bankrupt and fell apart. And Donald A. Wolheim, who was the one who kind of created this double book, went on to make D.A.W. Our favorite To continue publishing dumpster books for us to read. (laughs) All right. So we flipped a coin to... See who would have to read the Robert Silverberg story, Collision Course. Yes, because we previously read Next Stop the Stars. Which was fine, I guess. I feel like you didn't like it very much. I didn't like it very much. I lost the coin flip and had to read Collision Course. Next Stop the Stars was all very short stories. And I think with a little bit more room, Robert Silverberg, his novellas are a little better than his short stories. I think he's quite a bit more popular than we first thought. Yes. I think Next Stop the Stars, not his best work, <laughs> for sure. Collision Course starts... Um, ra- wait, wait. Sorry to stop you, but before we go on, who do you think got the better book? Based on what? <laughs> I still don't know what anything about Nemesis from Tarot. Okay, well, I think I got the better book. Okay, well... <laughs> Based on what you know of Collision Course... Do you think it's going to be better or worse than what you remember? (laughs) You probably got the better book. I got the better book. Okay. All right. All right. Continue. (laughs) So we start with Mackenzie, who's the Technarch. I love Technarchs. (laughs) I have no idea what they are, but they're in so many sci-fi things. There's always a (laughs) Technarch. Yeah, uh, so in this, I think Earth is also referred to as Terra. People on Earth are called Terrans. And the government in the future is led by the Technarch. And then he has a bunch of Archons that all like... Archons are great, too. Love those. Yeah, they're um, like the head of, a de- of various departments who all report to the Technarch. And all of these leaders are chosen for their size and intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> It's very important that they be big. They're all a bunch of big guys. So Mackenzie, he's big. Yeah, he's the technarch. He's got to be really big. He's stoic. He's got a rock hard face. Since you haven't read it, I wanted to share some of these quotes with you so you can appreciate. Mackenzie stared for a moment at the big, thick fingers of his hands as they lay before him on the desk. Hands like those could never wire a circuit, wield a surgeon's excising vibro knife, or tune the fine controls on a thermonuclear generator. But they were hands that could choke the life from a man. (laughs) I think that is a parallel between our books. The big choking hands. (laughs) We also, in this world, have faster-than-light travel. But it's relatively new, and it's accomplished through the Daviot Leeson Drive, which allows ships to jump into hyperspace, sometimes called no space, and then back out. So travel farther distances than you'd be able to if you stayed in regular space. And there's a crew that's gone on, like, this first big, faster-than-light mission. There's Lawrence... 
Peter Zoon, Nakamura, Clive, and Hernandez. And, okay, so this crew, they're returning from a flight, and they have to give their report. The Technarch doesn't give them any time for rest. They found aliens. So they do this report, and it's like, all right, you all have to get back into your ship and go straight back out into space immediately because the Technarch has given them this new mission, which is that we have to go negotiate with these aliens, divide up all the planets in the universe for them to colonize and for Terrans to colonize so we avoid a war. And That is bold. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, feel like just starting the negotiation with that would immediately lead to war. Uh. You're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And um, this is where the title of the book comes from. So there's a quote. It's a collision course, not a collision between spaceships or planets or even suns. It's an inevitable collision between two stellar empires, theirs and ours. I think that at this point, they were very stealthy on this first mission. Aliens didn't even see them. So they probably really could have waited a bit, you know, think things through (laughs) before, like sending the team back out. They're all like super grumpy, bloodshot eyes, sleep deprived, but uh, they have to do what the Technarch says. So in addition to our regular ship's crew, they also compile a team of specialists to specifically handle this negotiation. So once this is all decided, we're introduced to our other main character and we follow him for the rest of the book. And it's usually a good sign when your third person narration the style changes when the focus shifts to another character Mm -hmm. so we meet martin bernard he's like an academic sociologist phd writer poet he's incredibly annoying and (laughs) extremely pretentious very smug and that's all very like reflected in the narration the style changes from Mackenzie cool. to him. Yeah, so basically the narration has like, it's full of foreign words and italics. It's got little snippets of poetry all <laughs> over the place. Yeah, so Bernard has also had two wives. He's now happily divorced. He has a child who's not in his life at all and wouldn't recognize him if they met on the street. And he's just uh, living the single life, chilling in his vibro chair. Is that a thing for singles? <laughs> I think it's like one of those chairs from like the sharper image at the mall. That's what it sounded like. He told himself that he deserved this comfort. He was the top man in his field. He had, besides, written a successful novel. His poems were highly esteemed and anthologized. He had struggled hard for his present acclaim. Now, at 43, with the problem of money solved forever and the problem of his second marriage equally neatly disposed of, there was no reason why he should not spend his evening in this luxurious solitude. Do you think this is someone Robert Silverberg knows? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's possible. He's um, rudely interrupted from his vibro chair time. <laughs> He's asked to head the negotiations team on this new mission, which I think he reluctantly agrees to, but I think he couldn't have chosen not to because of his gigantic ego. Then the others that are on the negotiations team, there's 
Roy Stone, who's an understudy for the Archon of Colonial Affairs. There's Norman Dominici, who's a biophysicist, and Thomas Havig, who is a neo-Puritan and a linguist. And when they're all brought together, Bernard and Havig apparently have a history because Havig wrote a paper and Bernard wrote a critique of his paper (laughs) and published it. And they immediately jump into this feud because Bernard is saying, you know, he just, he had to write this thing because of all the, the problems with Havig's paper and how he just couldn't let it be without correcting those things and then having accusing him of not being scholarly in his response and they go back and forth they kind of have this little feud back and forth the whole time but get to know each other a little better in person havig also gets a yoda moment where he'll like give advice to the rest of the crew he says impatience is unwise it leads to anger anger to rashness rashness to sin bernard just gets annoyed at everything havoc does like he's sitting there quietly reading his prayer book and the very tranquility of the man irritated (laughs) bernard they complete their flight to this alien planet. They park their spaceship really far away, so they have to go on a long walk also. We see this alien species. They're the Norglins. The Norglins? Yeah, Norglins. <laughs> They're in the process of colonizing this new planet. They have green and blue skin. But they're mostly humanoid, but their elbows swing in all directions. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, when they're startled, they, like swing their arms around (laughs) uh and they have like gigantic saucer eyes then it's up to uh the language team here to communicate with them and they're gonna have to learn each other's languages right and this part was really bad (laughs) it was really not clear how much time was passing because It was kind of contradictory. In one place, it seemed like it took them a week to learn. In one place, it seemed like it was actually only like a six-hour day. It was kind of confusing, not not super clear. And I kept thinking about Dinosaur World. Oh, like learning the dinosaur language? Yeah, because one of the things they realize is that the Norglins can like make a lot of other sounds. They do like clicks and stuff. And so the Terrans decide, like, we couldn't possibly learn this language. So they're going to have to learn Terran. Okay. If Jenny can learn the (laughs) dinosaur language in, like, a couple days. Yeah, or you got to fart to make your smells. (laughs) I think they could have at least tried. Also, it seems like they would want to try because I feel like not knowing their language would put them at a severe disadvantage during negotiations. That's true. I felt like there was enough in this idea that you could turn it this in itself into a whole story, something like Arrival. Yeah. You have to be pretty smart to do that. Yeah, you'd have to, like, know something. Like, even Arrival, people kind of, like, tear apart about how, like... Sure. Uh, But let me just share an example from Collision Course of what we get. Havoc jostled the sweating Earthmen around, shouting instructions at them. Bend! Bend! The linguist turned to the aliens, indicated the frantically bending Earthmen, and said, To bend! (laughs) Do 
bend, repeated the aliens in turn. It seemed impossible that a language could be learned this way, but the aliens had retentive memories, and Havig approached the job of teaching them as if it were his sacred duty in the cosmos. By the time the sun began to dip toward the low hills behind the colony, several key concepts had been established. To be, to build, to travel. At least Havoc hoped they had been established. It certainly seemed that way, but there was no certainty. The aliens seemed pleased with their new knowledge. They tapped their bony chests and exclaimed, I, Norglin, you, Terran, Terran, we Terrans. Terrans come, sky, star. Bernard nodded to himself. Why so- would you start with verbs? <laughs> I think uh, they, they did nouns, I guess. But, but then... Sorry, you you can say what you're going to say. I have so many complaints about this. It was bad. I did not enjoy this. Bending's not a good verb. No. (laughs) You pick like walk. (laughs) But then also, at the end of the day, when the Norglins were telling them what they've done, there's no verbs. Yeah. In that sentence they used. Uh, They learned come. That's what they learned. Mm. Good verb. (laughs) okay so we barely have any real language learned but then we're going straight into negotiations i feel like probably you know we could have spent more time with the norglins learn more about their society and their their culture but no straight into negotiations this is urgent that we get this resolved immediately So, the Norglins they've been talking to seem to be, like, they're kind of, like, in charge of a construction site. (laughs) There's some construction workers. Yeah, they're, like... Like, hey, you bend, I bend. (laughs) Bend this pole over here. So... build this colony. So, they realize that, like, they're not the ones to be negotiating (laughs) with. So, they come back with two leaders, or Carvish... Is that just like the foreman? They got like a white helmet on? No, the the ones they've been talking to are like the foreman. Okay. Okay, yeah. And so they come back with some other leaders from some other planet. So we meet Screeny and Vorkatel. And uh, then we continue negotiations in extremely broken Terran. And this comes up later and doesn't actually matter, but just a note about this language is that it's basically mostly English. It's, It's... altered and mixed with other languages so current english that like we're talking right now is considered old english to them mostly unintelligible to the modern terran who doesn't study old languages but uh it's not like that's reflected in the writing or anything it's just just a fun little factoid fun fact the negotiations basically end when the norglin leaders uh tell them like Okay, sure, yeah, you can keep the planets you've colonized, and we'll take the rest. (laughs) Boom. Yeah, and they're like, wait, 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 no. Negotiate. That's not fair. And they're like, well, too bad, and then they leave. They try again to talk to them later, but the foreman guys are like, oh, they they don't want to talk to you anymore. They're done. (laughs) So they are like, well, I guess we'll go back to the Technarch. And uh, this is probably going to be war. There's like a moment where Havig is like, what if it just wasn't war? What if we just uh, agree to these terms? (laughs) And everyone's like, you idiot. 
So they're all defeated. They go back to their ship. They jump back into no space. So Bernard is just wandering around the ship, kind of complaining. It's taking so long to get home. And he wanders into the crew's quarters. He's just like, I'm hungry. Are we there yet? The crew kind of like, you know, they're clearly in the middle of something and they kind of gently try to shoo him out. And this was the first moment where this book actually was like, oh, this might get interesting or good. Um, It did a pretty good job of like building up tension because it's like Bernard is mostly just complaining and like grumpy and just being a grumpy baby. But everything like he's got this sense that something isn't right. And the crew is clearly acting like something's not right. Mm. They're like, oh, finally, like, you know, it's been four hours longer than this trip in no space was supposed to take. But finally, they jump back into regular space. And the crew tells them all that basically there are 100,000 light years away from where they were supposed to be. And they've completely lost control of the ship. Their ship is being controlled by some someone else, and they're being pulled on a... Mm. None of their um, instruments are working, nothing's working, and they don't know what's going on. At this point, Havig has a nervous breakdown and has to be sedated, and Bernard and others on the ship also have reactions, but not quite as severe as Havig. Then we're introduced to another species, which are the Rosgolans. And at first, it was like, oh, no. Is this going to be like another Star Trek Q episode? Or Mundo all (laughs) over again from Dinosaur World? It wasn't that bad. But they are like just a super powerful race that can just control people's ships and move them all over wherever they feel like. They pull the ship to their planet. And we didn't really get a lot of uh, exploration of their actual planet and their actual, like, society or anything like that. There was, like, a little hint of it, describing it as, like, a Marxist utopia, basically. A little hint of fully automated luxury gay space communism. Mm -hmm. Cool. And uh, then they're like, okay, we're going to do interrogations. And some of the crew are like, no, we're not going to tell you anything. And they're like, okay. And they just like stick a little tentacle into everybody's brains and pull (laughs) all their memories out, which uh, forces everyone to like relive all those memories again. And I think Bernard has to like relive his marriages and stuff. (laughs) Does he learn? Does he change? (laughs) He does by the end. He has an actual arc, which I'll come back to. But all right. So then the Roz Golans are like, okay, it's time for negotiations, part two. And they basically teleport the Norland foreman there, not even the leaders, <laughs> just the like construction guys. And the Norglands are very proud. They're like, yeah, we already said what we want to do, which is they keep what they have and everything else is ours and we're not going to negotiate. So the Ross Golans basically humiliate them by like levitating them and like just. <laughs> aren't you embarrassed? Yeah. <laughs> now do what we like, want. Like, why aren't you stopping us? Why aren't you stopping us? And then drop them. And then the Ross Golans mediate a negotiation where they split up only their galaxy and it's divided between Terrans and Norglins, and the Rosgolans are going to enforce the boundary. So no crossing it, and no war, or else. 
they'll show up. Also seems bad. So that's that. It's uh, not really negotiable because there's nothing anyone can do about it. Right. The Rosgolans send them on their way to actually return home to the Technarch. They report back to Mackenzie, who's completely devastated by the news because he wanted to be the one to forge man's empire in the stars. Hmm. And this means that, like, he won't be alive for that. Uh, but Bernard finds a way to be hopeful for humanity to someday achieve the same level of advancement as the Rosgolans. And he's, like, trying to say that the trip gave them, like, a sense of their actual place in the universe and a clear goal of what they could achieve. Yeah, so Bernard's character arc, it's basically spelled out at the end. It says... The trip had broadened him. He had extended his knowledge of himself and of others. He could look back now and see the Martin Bernard of the recent past in a cold, clear new perspective. What he saw hardly pleased him. He saw a self-centered, almost irritatingly selfish man with a streak of cruelty well camouflaged by his outward amiable ways. His hatchet job on Havig's article, for instance, had not been an expression of scholarly dissent as much as it had been an attack on a philosophy of life that called his own hedonistic ways into question. His relationship with his wife, too, he saw with uncomfortable clarity. It was not that he was not born to be a good husband, but simply that he had not been willing to work at it. She was no shrew, merely a woman who wanted to share her husband's inner life and had been shut completely away from it. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and then there's also this idea that the technarch and humanity and all of Terra is the same sort of arc here or will have that mm -hmm. same arc when they're ready to accept this, that and it says earth was in for the same kind of rough awakening. Bernard thought, uh, yeah, that's pretty much the end. I think there was an actual point to this book. The ending wrap up. He makes a thesis mm -hmm. <laughs> statement here which is not the case for most of these books that we've read on the show. No. Where half the time it's like the author is just trying to make a quick buck or wants to explore a fetish they have <laughs> <laughs> or fired their editor and thinks they can do it alone. The final thought in the book is, uh, it would never be the same again, Bernard thought. Never the same again for any of us. But somehow, deep within his soul, he felt that everything was going to work out for the best, that though neither he nor the unhappy technarch, nor any man now walking the earth would live to see it, mankind would someday be taking its rightful place in the stars. I don't know. Manifest destiny in space. Yeah, well, I mean, it starts with them, like, dividing up the universe to colonize. Yeah. Very pre-Dune. <laughs> so, there were a lot of future words, but most of them start with vibro. <laughs> Everything's vibrating in the future. Yeah. There's a vibro chair, a vibro knife, a vibro shower. Mm, that sounds good. <laughs> I think it's a, like a beam of ions that take your dirt away. Oh, I was like imagining like it chains your legs and arms, just shakes all the <laughs> dirt off of you. <laughs> that sounds bad. <laughs> You know, those things that they put the astronauts in that spins you in all different directions. <laughs> if you're feeling too stressed out, you can take a relaxo tab. And relaxo. They have an instant form of travel called the trans mat. 
just like teleports you from one portal to another by tearing your molecules apart and rebuilding mm-hmm. them somewhere else. There was a lot of interaction between the characters while we're just sitting around waiting on the spaceship to find out that someone's wife was killed in a transmat incident. <laughs> she just didn't materialize on the other side. The words impotent and limp were also used a lot. Like people do things impotently, <laughs> just flaccidly wandering around the ship. <laughs> There's just something on Silverberg's mind. <laughs> yeah. His writing. I think another main point of this was kind of the conflict between Bernard and Havig and their like religious views, which I don't care for. (laughs) (laughs) That's about it. Okay. Who do you think this book is for? I think if the idea of meeting another species of alien out there really blows your mind, this might be for you. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> who, who do you think it's for based on this uh, synopsis? Yeah, I don't know. It seems its ideas seem pretty outdated yes. in science fiction now. Maybe at the time this was more interesting. Yes, definitely. But if it sounds like a lot of stuff that's been explored better. And then maybe it doesn't sound like a fun 120 page romp, which no. is what I imagine <laughs> these books are supposed to be. Maybe not. I don't know. No, it wasn't a fun romp. (laughs) Well, talking about fun romps, (laughs) let me tell you about the nemesis from Terra. (laughs) We did The Ginger Star by Lee Brackett and talked about some other stuff she written. And it seems pretty clear she has a style. (laughs) Meaning this is kind of the same story with different (laughs) people told differently, but it's got the same beats. Okay. And so are all of her characters in this also Han Solos? Uh, there's a lot of Han Solos. <laughs> okay. So I remember something I read about Lee Brackett. It was either like a movie studio guy or a publisher who read some of her works and commented that he didn't realize that she was a woman because she writes like a man. And at the time I was like, okay. Is that, like, just a backhanded compliment, like, saying that, oh, she's actually good, she writes like a man? But I think after reading some of her works, I feel like she just writes characters that are, like, male power fantasies. Very much so. But also, what really wasn't in Ginger Star that is in this is the way women are portrayed. (laughs) Great. Uh, Definitely feels like... uh, not even just like a man, but a man who's not experienced a conversation with a woman would wow. describe a woman. Yeah. And I don't, that may be on purpose. She may be like working the system where she's got all her Han Solos. and. It, yeah. I mean, it, I think it worked for her to get her stuff out there and to get so many like screenplays yep. made. And The setting of this book is actually pretty unclear and is up for interpretation. Okay. The way I interpreted it is it's kind of like Dune where we are thousands and thousands of years in the future, like way, way, way in the future. Uh, And we're on Mars, which has been terraformed, experienced a golden age and a downfall, and is now like reverting to unterraformed, like it's falling Mm. apart. And during that time, humanity has diversified uh, biologically, like there's different forms of humans, kind of like the ginger star. But you could also interpret this 
where it's not that far in the future and there are a bunch of aliens and we just accept that as a thing. Okay. What kind uh, of aliens? So there are the Martians, which it's unclear if they're just natural inhabitants of Mars or they're humans that uh, that live on Mars. And then there are the Earthmen who are people who are not from Mars. Okay. There are the wing people, and their actual name is the winged people. Um, they're humanoids covered in feathers and they have wings instead of arms. Okay. And don't know if they have beaks. <laughs> Didn't never described uh, their mouths. But they are feathery. Yeah, and there are plenty of kisses. So there may be some beak touching. I don't know. <laughs> you, it's up to the reader to yeah, decide. They did not describe the kisses or the mouths. And there are the thinkers, which are mysterious. You don't know what they are. Okay. So most of the cities are deserted or there are very few people living. There's nomads and there is a hereditary king of the Martians that is sort of not, he, he can't do anything. There's nothing to do. Just sits around impotently. Yes, a very impotent king. But very recently a mineral was discovered on Mars and the Terran Exploitations Company has moved in and they are essentially taking over the planet by bringing in a ton of money. Uh, they control everything. They control the police. They're uh, very much taking it over. And part of their plan is they have this system of indentured servitude in which poor Martians are rounded up and thrown in the mines. If you have debt, you become a miner. Mm. There was a new law on Mars, a world-worn threadbare and weary with the weight of time. Where the little laws of the city-states had been enough since man could remember, Ed Fallon had come from Earth. His Terran Exploitations Company, now the company, was law. At the frontiers, beyond ordinary law, making its own rules and breaking men's backs over them. And we have our main character, Rick, who is an ultimate cool guy Han Solo. Eric John Stark style. Okay. However, he starts the story a piece of shit. <laughs> so he was, he's a low level laborer on a spaceship. All right. Like a janitor or something or like a warehouse worker. And he gets fired because he sucks and they just leave him on Mars and he has no way to get home because he immediately spends his entire life savings at a brothel. Oh no. He literally has... Zero dollars. Okay. Because of that, the Terran Exploitation Company is trying to get him to work <laughs> in the mines. So he's being hunted by them. And he's the same as Eric John Stark in The Ginger Star or any of these Han Solos where he kind of doesn't have any character or emotions because he's our, like, he's us, he's our guy. Like a blank slate yeah. for us to imagine uh, ourselves being this cool. Yes, but then he like does things where like I wouldn't do that or I wouldn't say that. So it's it, Rick is an interesting enigma that we will explore through this. <laughs> okay. Um so Rick is on the run from the press gangs, which are the people that get you and force you to work in the mines, and he escapes them into a small house where he meets a dwarf and an old woman. And we get my favorite line of the book. <laughs> the table was worth more universal credits than Rick could make in 10 years of sweating in the glory hole. <laughs> What's the glory we hole? We never find out what the glory hole is. What? 
So I'm just going to assume it's the same as it is now. Oh, no. (laughs) It's a lot of years. (laughs) And this old woman is our Gareth from the Ginger Star or our Yoda. Maybe not our Yoda. Definitely our Gareth from the Ginger Star where she's (laughs) blind. She can see the future. um, And she offers to read his palm, basically. She reads a prophecy in which Rick will become the shadow over Mars, which is bad, maybe. And the future reading then turns to hypnosis and Rick can't move. That was a thing in the Ginger Star, too, wasn't it? Okay. But this hypnosis kind of unlocks something in Rick. So in this book, rather than Rick learning from his experiences and changing, he has these, like, moments where he changes drastically. Mm -hmm. During the hypnosis, he sees the structure of time as this branching plot, and he's able to, like, look into the different branches and see the possibilities for the future of Mars. And afterwards, he becomes more sinister and even less like he stops having even emotions like pain or being tired all of which make him kind of a bad main character <laughs> yeah. i think <laughs> is this like just influence from dune like seeing I mean, the branching it, time and the whole very, setup of mars it's very dune but i think it came out before dune this is 1961 i think dune is 65 oh wow but the whole thing's very Dune. Interesting. Um, without, like, any of the point or good stuff. I don't know. It's like the setting of Dune. Okay. And the people from Dune. But this hypnosis, she's trying to kill Rick. He breaks it and kills her. Just a punch with his big meaty hands. <laughs> and the dwarf runs away. What was the dwarf doing this whole time? <laughs> He's scared. Okay. <laughs> then, just like the Ginger Star... We meet all our other characters who are way more interesting and way more fun than Rick. And you just wish you were with them the whole time. So there's Lala, the dwarf. He comes back? Yeah, he comes back. And the Rick may have killed his mom, maybe. There's Haral, which is the boy king of Mars. He's the <laughs> impotent king. Okay. And there's Budok, or <laughs> Bodok, uh, who is Haral's military chief and best friend. And there's obviously kind of like a pederastic thing going between Haral and him. They're very close. And it seems like a lot more. Lala tells Haral, the dwarf tells the boy king, about the prophecy where Rick will be the shadow over Mars. Okay. And Haral and Budok decide to get all of Mars's different factions together and get Rick and kill him. And while we're at it, we'll just kill the Terran Exploitations Company too. <laughs> Okay. Because they don't want to be taken over by Rick, this non-Martian. And then we meet the villains. We have Ed Fallon. He's the Terran Exploitations guy. It's his company. The mineral that they are mining is called Fallonite. There is Jaffa Storm, (laughs) who is our other big... He's like the evil Han Solo. But Rick is kind of also an evil Han Solo. (laughs) But he's an even more... He's he's just Rick, but bigger. (laughs) Okay. And he's Fallon's right-hand man, some kind of mercenary, and he's probably genetically modified, and he's definitely evil. Like, obviously, like, everything he says (laughs) just is super evil. (laughs) 
And then we meet even more other people. There is Hugh St. John, who is in some part of the Terran Exploitations Company, and he's like a secret agent trying to get information about the company so he can report them and get them shut down. And then there is his right-hand man, or there's his right-hand person, Aaron Mack, who is the most Han Solo. Oh my goodness. Just fully Han Solo. Uh, described as a civilized bandit. But Aaron Mack is my favorite character because the book uses he, him pronouns. Okay. But no character ever refers to Aaron Mack with he, him pronouns or any gender. And Aaron Mack is always complaining about being misgendered. Like every other scene, just uh, mad about what clothes that they wear. Like, oh, someone thought I was this or someone thought I was this. And I don't know, just fun. Okay. And... Seems to be a love interest of Hugh St. John also. Okay. But Hugh St. John has a second love interest called (laughs) Mayo McCall. (laughs) Mayo? All right. Call me Mayo. And she's a sexy lady who's a secret agent working for Hugh St. John. And I think her role is just love interest. Everyone loves her and wants to marry her. Okay. All right. So... Sometime off screen, Rick is captured and put in the mines, and we cut to him leading a rebellion, trying to get out of the mines. And Jaffa shows up to come down and personally capture every rebel and torture them and kill them. Personally. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Mayo is there, and she intervenes, and Rick and her escape through a sandworm tube. Because there were sandworms on Mars, but they all died. But you can find all their tubes wow. they're crawling in. They eventually get out. They crawl through the dead sandworm. That's the scene from the cover where he punches his way through a dead sandworm. And they meet the winged people. And we first meet Kira, who seems like another love interest for Rick. Although I think Rick thinks that she's too young, so he's not interested, but Kira is definitely interested in him. Do you um, know how young she is? Does not say. Okay. And it's, do- it's like not clear even what age means for the winged people, because I think they live a lot longer. Right. And she sees the strength inside Rick and knows that he will take over Mars. <laughs> and Mayo agrees that Rick could take over Mars. I'm guessing based on seeing him punch through some bones. (laughs) Well, if his other competition is this impotent boy king, then... But Jaffa Storm, who's just bigger Rick. Oh, right, right, right. Um, So these two people telling him he could take over Mars inspires our second change where he becomes even less human and much more sinister. What? (laughs) And he says, why not me? Take hold of my future. Sure. My future and a world, a whole round world just waiting for somebody to pick it up. Some guy's hand will grab it. Why not mine? You're the woman I need, a strong woman, to go beside me like a sword. Together, Mayo, and I'll give you Mars to wear on a chain around your neck. Wow. And so he says this, and Mayo realizes maybe Rick shouldn't take over (laughs) Mars. Okay. And she, she starts backpedaling. She says to Rick, I wanted to save Mars, to build, to restore, to create. And then Rick says, have I said I wouldn't? (laughs) And when she responds, will you? And then Rick turns and gives her a look of feral ugliness (sighs) and says, listen, Mayo, 
I've never worn anybody's collar. I'm not making any promises or any guesses. And if that isn't like a dame, after a lifetime of taking the boot from guys higher up, I see a way to maybe get a little higher than anybody else. And right away, you start tying my hands, shutting the gates on me. Wow. That's harsh. (laughs) So definitely should not take over Mars. (laughs) But the winged people take Rick to the King Haral, who wants to kill him, so the prophecy doesn't happen. But Lala, the dwarf, has a blood debt, so he gets to kill Rick. Okay. Uh, And he decides to torture Rick to death, which upsets everyone. (laughs) Because Haral's like, just kill him. Like, (laughs) why? But no, you, you killed my mom. I need to torture you to death. And so obviously the torture is crucifixion, because Rick is Jesus, and we get another Rick evolution, where he changes again, and at this point he says he will never feel pain or love or happiness or sadness again. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Before they can actually kill him, Jaffa Storm breaks in, kills every single person in the room except for Mayo, who he just takes with him, and leaves Rick on the cross. Somehow Kira survives, and Budok is like mortally wounded, and he gives him the collar of Ra which is the thing a king wears to signify that he's a king. Mm. Which I thought was kind of neat that the king wears a collar instead of a crown. You know, he's got to serve the people instead of reign over them. That's a little interesting. interesting little thing. This would be proof because apparently only two people on Mars ever know how to open or close the collar. So if he has the collar, it signifies that he was actually chosen to be king. Mm. You can't fake it. So Rick wants to get Mayo back. And he wants to take over Mars. So he rallies all the Martians, all the Earthmen that are kind of on Mars for some reason, and whatever Hugh St. John and Aaron Mack have going on to put on a joint attack against the company. And then he drops, he's pretty sure Jaffa Storm has superpowers. (laughs) Based on no information. Okay. What kind of powers? Unknown. But he's right. Jaffa Storm has telepathy. (laughs) So he knows all of Rick's plan and everything's happening. But then as they're like going to do the attack, Rick again imagines, wait, one of his powers could be telepathy. We got to change everything. So everyone sings a fun song so they don't think about what they're going to do. Oh my God. So Jaffa can't figure it out. Is a song written out in the book? No, it's not. Okay. But apparently it's lewd. (laughs) But then I guess the the new plan that Rick comes up with is he flies a spaceship up into space and then back down and crashes it into the company. They'll never see it coming. Yeah. Just wonder what like plan A was. <laughs> that was plan B. <laughs> Uh, So they got the company, but Jaffa Storm is nowhere to be found, and neither is Mayo, and neither is Kira. Hugh St. John tries to figure out what they should do next, trying to, you know, get Rick to do some responsible things, maybe give the power to him so he can Mm. run Mars correctly. And Rick says, they're my men. I brought them together, and I control them. There's no law on Mars but strength. Now I've got strength. I'm willing to play along with you unless you get under my feet too much. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Whatever looks best to me, but the devil with Mars and to you too. Uh, so Jeez. definitely he's just like kind of a bad guy now. <laughs> yeah. He just keeps getting worse and worse. So Hugh St. John and Aaron Mack decide that he's too crazy and they knock him out, tie him up, and send him into space. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> 
And here Aaron Mack delivers my favorite line of the book. Sometimes a dirty blow wins a clean fight. Rick has some adventures in space, some more adventures on Mars. That takes up a good portion of the book and none of it makes a difference or changes anything. And then he finally finds Kira again, who is in the middle of dying. They have an emotional moment where she tells him where Jaffa has taken Mayo. She also tells him, you know, she hopes he can make Mars a beautiful and happy place for everyone. (laughs) And then Rick's like, yeah, okay, sure, whatever. And he he goes to... (laughs) He goes to get Mayo in Jaffa Storm, and she dies. So Jaffa's hidden himself with the Thinkers, who are the mysterious people on Mars. And they are some aliens who have surpassed the need for a body and have sent their consciousness into another dimension or realm or something. So the Thinker city is just a pile of couches with alien bodies just sleeping on them. Uh, Weird. And this is where Rick and Jaffa have their fight. The fight first starts with Rick getting nude for some reason. What? It's not really clear why he has to get naked, but he gets naked. And then they're just fighting, like, amongst these couches. (laughs) So, like, Jaffa's, like, shooting and, like, bodies are blowing up and getting cut in half. And the way Rick beats him is he takes half of an alien and throws it at Jaffa. And it, like, knocks him over. (laughs) Wow. And then he kills him with his big meaty hands. Then Rick gets mayo, because she was like tied up in the back, goes back to Hugh St. John and Aaron Mack to confront them. They have their arguments and it seems like Rick is going to take over Mars. But I think talking with Kira and seeing her die maybe reversed whatever was happening. Like the human side of him beat whatever this thing that was going on in his brain. Okay. So he he decides to give Mars to Hugh St. John. He's saved by love. Yes, but not from the love interest, from Kira. Okay. Who... I don't know. And it's never explained what was going on with his brain or why it was like switching and doing this thing and he became like evil and not evil. Right. Uh, And that's it. In the end, love wins. So obviously this is like the Ginger Star or Total Recall. (laughs) Yeah. But it's also kind of like a book I read called Stars My Destination by Alfred Bester which is an even older sci-fi book. I think it was kind of a big deal because it was one of the earliest sci-fis to have an anti-hero where the main character was just a bad guy. Mm. It was a revenge story where someone did him wrong and then he was going to go ruin their life in every way possible. Gosh. He's clever, he's conniving, and he's horrible. The difference between this and Stars My Destination is that the main character beats these other people with his wits and cleverness, whereas Rick seems kind of like a force of nature or like... (laughs) There's something controlling him or something to make all these things happen to fix or destroy Mars. Yeah, and it's almost like someone with total knowledge of the story is writing him (laughs) to know that, oh, yeah, the bad guy has telepathy, and uh, I just know that now. And then also it had a bunch of, like, little world-building moments that were the best part. Like, you get pieces of stories of other things in this larger universe. That was, like, the best stuff in Ginger Star. Yeah. You were talking about the uh, future words, and I started oh, making a list, but goodness. it got too long. I was going to read all of them, but it got too long. But I just want to 
mention some places. Okay. I had a lot of trouble because there are, there's King City and Newtown and Trade City and the Low Canals, but they're not separate places. They're districts in other cities. Okay. But the district is called King City. So, but it's not a city. No, it's a district of Ruh. And there okay. are two cities with the low canals. Did you get a map or anything? No map. Too bad. Some other great places, though, were Thieves Market, another district in Ruh, and Thieves City, which is a city somewhere else. There's also the Furnace, hottest place on Mars, which is a bar, maybe? It's like that parking lot outside of Fry's. <laughs> yeah. The Street of 9,000 Joys. <laughs> That's a lot of joys. It's a lot of joys <laughs> for one street. Is that like the red light district? What is that? Uh, yeah. Uh, it was unclear if that was one place or like it seemed like it was a building called the Street of 9,000 Joys, but then it could just be a district based on the name. Unclear. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, my favorite was Dream Palace. Wow. Which is a chain. <laughs> like, like a 7-Eleven. <laughs> There's Dream Palaces all over Mars and the galaxy. Or is it like a convenience store? It's like a VR club. Whoa. Where you can go in and pay at like a VR machine and play VR video games. Wow. But I just love it because it's a chain. Yeah, it sounds so fancy. I'm just going to run through some different types of people found okay. here. Floaters. <laughs> homesteaders. Placermen. Space hands. Marshies. Moderates. Middle swampers. <laughs> low canalers. <laughs> And bums guys. <laughs> okay. Wow. Is that what it sounds like? What's a bums guy? I didn't say. What? <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to list some things. Okay. The most prominent was the Mickey, which is their name for just a laser gun. Is there a history as to how it got that slang name or? No. There's also pencil tube, which is another kind of gun. Okay. <laughs> uh, there's there's the glory hole, of course. Of course, classic. There is fill drink. Is that an alcohol? It's not alcohol. And their word for sword is slice bar. <laughs> uh, there is the beauty of a hundred worlds, no miners allowed. Which is a sort of traveling play. <laughs> okay. So that's Nemesis of From Terra. And who do you think this book is for? It is weird, but it is definitely just the genre of Ginger Star where Ultimate Cool Guy takes over a planet and has some adventures. So space romp, but a little weird sometimes. <laughs> there were so many similarities do you think this was an influence on Frank Herbert? Well, I think we've since learned that Lee, Lee Brackett is a lot more popular and kind of a bigger deal than we first thought. So it's possible. But I imagine Herbert was already writing Dune when this came out mm -hmm. based on the time. But there is a lot of stuff in there. Is there some earlier fiction about sandworms and spice mining? <laughs> I don't know. That I'm just not aware of yet. I'm sure some I'm sure there's a a deep history of Dune that we could read. 
if either of us cared. Did you have any other thoughts about the collection as a whole? I don't know. Do you think that maybe they kind of put a romp with like a more thoughtful book and that's kind of what was going on here? Nemesis from Terra is your fun one and then you get your more thinky sci-fi on the other side. Yeah, they kind of balance each other out. Yeah. Maybe if each of us had read both, we would have had a better reading experience. (laughs) Did you feel like it was a fun romp? It sounds like your main character was so dark and had such a negative arc. (laughs) Yeah, it was was bizarre. (laughs) (laughs) I had fun... The same way I had fun in Ginger Star, whereas anytime I was with a different character, it was fun. Or just seeing the little tidbits of the space opera universe. I think that's it for the Ace Double novel. If you'd like to join us in December for our holiday special, we are reading Snow Castles by Duncan McGeary. You can contact us at dumpsterbookclub at gmail.com or join our group on Goodreads.